0: to be with you this morning. Special welcome to all our visitors. Uh, When we planned, as we were preparing our preaching, as we planned, uh, we realized that the baptismal service hits perfectly in Revelation where we're preaching. So when we think about baptism... It, we we often say it is an outward sign of the inner change, and that's true. It's true for Eliana. It's true for for all of us who've been baptized. But I think there's something even more than that that happens at baptism. So baptism is the sign that you belong to the body of Christ. It's the it's the sealing, if you want to call it that. It's the time when you. Pledge your allegiance to the body of Christ. And if you haven't figured out already, Revelation is a lot about whose kingdom, allegiance. It's a lot about who you belong to. Please turn in your copies of the scriptures to Revelation 12. And we are uh, nearly central in Revelation now. We're taking larger chunks. But this is, uh, this is chapter 12 and, and 13 and parts of 14. Especially chapter 12 are what, what is called a bridging narrative. So prior to this, you had this kind of opening, the letters to the seven churches, and then you had the seven trumpets. And that, now there's a bridge and the bridge is what, it's the central theme. It is the middle of the book. It is what Paul, uh, John has been working on to bring us to. And, and so he uses this narrative, this, this portion, to, to bridge into the, the, the next part, which is the seven seals, and then the final look into the throne room. Um, and now, I also need to tell you a story. So in Greek mythology... Um, I I don't subscribe to Greek mythology, so don't get alarmed, okay? But in Greek mythology, the Romans uh, embraced gods from all over. So the the world in which uh, Paul and John and Peter and the early church moved is a Roman world. And in that world, they saw statues of gods everywhere they went. And particular Caesars, particular rulers, would embrace certain gods that they thought were their gods. And in the case of Nero, it was Apollo. Nero embraced Apollo as his central god. Kind of the where all the other Greek gods would, would originate from. And, uh, or... or is, is how his world worked. And uh, Apollo, in Greek mythology, is the son of Zeus. And, uh... And before he is born, before Apollo is born, another Greek god named Python, it's a snake, a dragon, decides to kill the mother and the unborn child, Apollo, because he knows that Apollo will someday rule over him. And he tries. But Zeus removes the mother and child and sends them away where the son can be born free. Apollo is, by the way, mentioned in other places in Scripture. He is the one who holds the world on his shoulder. In Hebrews 1, there's this wonderful way where the writer of Hebrews says, The the whole world is sustained, held by Christ. And every Greek reader, every Jewish reader understood that they're referring to this statue of Apollo that they would see and that Jesus is bigger than Apollo. Now, read with me, or follow along in Revelation 12. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, And a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. And she cried out because because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns. By the way, python is often depicted with many heads. "'With seven crowns on his head, his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and threw them to the earth. "'He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. "'She gave birth to her son, who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. "'And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. "'And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days.' Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud shout, a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who lived in heaven rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus Christ. Then the dragon stood on the shore beside the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns, with ten crowns on the horns. And, each writ- and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, But it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. And I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given great authority to do what he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast." They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belonged to the Lamb who was slain before the world was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone who is destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. I would love to keep reading. This is rich stuff. This is powerful things. Now, lest you think I've lost my mind, it, this, is, this is the things that have sustained God's people through the years. And, uh, and why did I tell you the story about Greek mythology? By the way, did you read it in here? Yeah. But, but so, so John, this is a time period when Nero is at his height and the Roman Empire is at his height. And John is equating the political power of the day... To Apollo, and, 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 or to the beast. And he's saying the beast, and, and it's, it's not subtle. John is not trying to be subtle. He is saying that there are kingdoms in this world who want to devour the kingdom of Jesus. As I was reading this, I, I, it suddenly struck me how bound we are by time. We want to assign dates. When we read 42 months, you immediately do the math. And you try to figure out, when is that 40? You know, that's not the world uh, that they... That's, these things are symbolic. So don't try to impose our world onto that. But understand that this is about something much bigger. It is about the great cosmic battle. And and not only are there uh, kind of this uh, Greek mythology, and, and, and why would John include that? Why would the writer of Hebrews include that? It's what their people understood. They understood that the powers, of, that, that these stories that they had heard of Apollo, and that Jesus is bigger than Apollo, and that, that Jesus... Uh, brings life to the world, and in, 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 their, in a small way, how Apollo brought life to his world, Jesus, in a much bigger way, brings life to the world. And, and so he's, he's comparing systems, he's comparing worlds, and he's saying, uh, and, and it's also this kind of narrative uh, of all of history is included in this chapter. When did Satan fall from heaven? Is it before creation, during creation, or after creation? No one knows for sure, but he did. And you saw that. The great dragon swept down a third of the stars, the angels in heaven. And so it's this kind of great cosmic battle. And Satan's one intention is this, to devour the kingdom of God. Satan's one intention is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And when you look at this, when you look at a passage like this, step back from it long enough to say, "What's the ultimate aim of this passage?" The ultimate aim of this passage is to show us there are two kingdoms, and, and uh, there are two kingdoms in, in this world. One is the kingdom of Jesus and the other is the kingdom of darkness. And uh, I, I regret to inform you that all political kingdoms fit into the latter. It's very clear. When you read Revelation and other places. that, and, and when we think about baptism and we think about allegiances. This is about committing ourselves to a, an allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. And and so, so think about this. So, and, and then there is great, obviously Jesus is coming to earth here. And, and, and so the nativity is here. And so you have creation and, the, and how man was created. And this is the answer to Genesis 3 where... where uh, where God tells Satan the, uh, and, and Adam and Eve that you are going to, you will, you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And so the offspring of this child, Jesus, crushes the head of Satan. Right here. It's right here. This is where it happens. This is where Satan's head gets crushed. And he is stumped into the earth where he belongs. Now he has power, but it's given power. It's not power that he has inerrantly on his own. And you notice how many times it says... Uh, he was allowed to wage war against God's holy people. At some point, that is going to stop, and he will no longer be allowed to wage war against God's holy people. And you notice how often in Revelation, there are these things about the marks on the foreheads and the Lamb's Book of Life. These are about allegiances. And a little later, it talks about the uh, 666, which is everyone loves to figure out, try to figure out what 666 is. My mother... Sorry, I shouldn't say who it was, but she, I don't think she listens. So my mother... Uh, wants to inform me that 666 is WWW, World Wide Web. Now, could it be? Yeah. There are parts of it that are very demonic. But it's not only that. It's much bigger. It is anyone whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life embraces the world. And by the way, in Hebrew and Greek, uh, the way they did their numbering system, they would sometimes assign letters to numbers, and um, 666 spells out Nero. Huh. Political systems, the, the world that's coming against Christianity. And, and so, uh, when I kind of step back from this passage far enough to say what's really going on here, I, I see uh, several main things. First of all, salvation is come to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Salvation is come to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Come on. Salvation has come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. It's a person. It's not a system. He's relational. He wants something. And that salvation demands something from us. Salvation demands something from its people. And it's simple. It demands allegiance. No man, look, putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be a good, You can't be partially Christian and partially unChristian. You can't have allegiances to two kingdoms. You don't make a good soldier. And so, when you think about about that, so salvation has come in the form of Jesus Christ, and and that salvation demands something from us, and when. when too often we make the mistake of looking at these passages and trying to figure out the minutia. Step away from it and say, what's really happening here? What's really happening here is that God is showing us how he is going to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And, and praise be to Jesus, this is comforting to those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's something very powerful about saying, in the end we win. In the end, we win. And Eliana is making that commitment today at saying, I am part of the kingdom that in the end will win. His head will be crushed. Python will be killed. The serpent will be delivered into the place he belongs. But until then, we have some responsibility about how we should live. Notice what it says. In... uh, in chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him, and the day is us. The day is us. They're the ones born of Jesus Christ. The ones born of Jesus Christ have conquered him with three things by the blood of the Lamb. And this is not some magic potion that when we come up to a certain place in life, we're supposed to pray a prayer that includes the words, the blood of Jesus. It's not a magic potion. It's not something that that uh, we suddenly we declare over ourselves. It is something that is really practical. It means our sins are forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives, brings, offers forgiveness. It, it offers the blood necessary for the sins we have committed. So, what would it look like if you lived as though you were forgiven? I think one of the challenges for us is to live as though we're forgiven rather than as we're sinners. Now, do we need to own our sin? Yes, all that. But when we live as though we're forgiven, we understand the horrible price it took to bring us to this place. And it should change us. And then it says, so we 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 overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the way, Scripture does not say that God forgets our sins as much as he removes them. He also just doesn't cover them. He removes them. He doesn't just cover our sins. He removes them. that says the word of their testimony. In a few minutes, Eliana is going to come up here and share her testimony. And I'm sure that when she does that, that this coming week, She is going to face challenges that directly address what she said this morning. That's just the way it is. But when we speak about how Jesus has brought deliverance to us, when we speak about the ways in which God is moving in our lives, as imperfect as it is, we bring honor to the one who is freeing us from the power of sin. And when that happens, Satan is angry. So they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by their, by their willingness to not love their own lives to death. What does it mean to love our own lives? When we think about loving our own lives, it, it, is, it, it looks like I'm going to look out for Marcus. I'm going to look out for my own agenda. I don't care what it is, I'm going to get what I want. So loving our own lives. But it also means, are we willing to ultimately live and die for Jesus? There are so many examples in history. Um, And and I think it's sometimes hard for us to think about loving our own lives unto death um, or or being willing to give our lives for the kingdom of Christ. I think for those of us who live in free, free cultures and worlds, that's hard for us to imagine. But what about our own selfishness? Do I love my own things so much that I'm, that's what I'm going to have? And I am speaking to myself. This morning I was thinking um, about what level, how selfish I am. And I was thinking about, okay, so how does that selfishness end? Well... I guess the choice, there's not a magic potion here. The choice is mine. Will I live selfishly or not? And that is a choice that all of us need to make. And when, we, when I'm willing to say, Jesus, I do not want to live selfishly, remind me of the moments when I need to act in unselfishness. I am being willing to die to my own desires for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. It has to be practical. These things have to be practical or, or they don't fit for us. So, as we go through the uh, baptismal part of our service, um, as we go through the, the time where Eliana gives her testimony, be thinking, and I, know, I want you to notice in chapter 13, then, uh, in the first, I think it's verse 6, it says about the beast, and the beast demands allegiance. Uh, the beast demands its it, it, its people, and say um, it isn't verse six. It's it's earlier than that. Let me find it here. And he's given great authority in the in the uh, immersed Bible. It says the whole world marvelled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. And and when I think about. Revelation, and I think about this passage, and I think about what it means when Jesus came to earth, what it means in the scope of human history that Jesus, that God offers a way that is so simple and yet so... careful how I say it, demanding, because it demands something of us. We need to move away from the idea that salvation is something you pray for and you get. Salvation is something you embrace and walk into. And it demands something from our lives on a daily basis or it's not real. It's about saying, who is my king? Whose kingdom will I follow? Who do I swear my allegiance to? Who do I embrace as the deliverer of the world? Who do I embrace as the deliverer of my life? so as we go through this service, this is a service that has been a prominent part for 2,000 years of church history. This week, I looked at several old engravings that are in the catacombs at Rome. And in these engravings, they're baptizing people. And so as we follow this ancient ritual, ritual is maybe not the right word, but this ancient way of embracing the kingdom of Jesus and reflecting that in a public way, we are saying, we belong to the body of Christ, we belong to the way of Jesus, and our allegiance is to him. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, as we think about um, where our allegiance is, and who we belong to, help us to think very carefully about what it means to allow your blood to forgive our sins, to live as though we're forgiven and embrace that forgiveness. And what it means that the word of our testimony, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we live, that's important. And that we not love our own lives, our own selfishness, but embrace an unselfish way as you have to us. I pray for Eliana. I pray that you would empower her to do that well as she embraces the kingdom of Jesus publicly. And Lord, I pray for safety and strength for her this coming week as she shares her testimony this morning. I pray that you would remind us to pray for her throughout this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.